beings have been fighting since we basically got a thumb that bent, right? <laughs> we fight. You put us in a room, we're going to fight. We're going to, you know, create manufacture hierarchy. We're going to we're going to we're going to gossip. We're going to talk trash about each other. If you don't have somebody on the ground to say, "Stop it." Or, "Why would you do that?" Or, "This is what she meant by that." Or, "Here's the process." That's what HR is supposed to do. This is Jeff Bastian, and you're listening to Ignited with Meaning. The voice you just heard was my guest today, Cyrilda Summers-McGee. The title of my podcast suggests that when people are living a meaningful life, they are ignited with passion. Cyrilda embodies that. She is a powerful voice for change and certainly not afraid to make her presence known. Uh, I'm going to turn down your mic volume just a little bit. Because I'm loud? Yeah. I'm very loud. Yeah, when when you're testing, you're... Today, Cyrilda runs a culturally progressive human resources firm with an emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion called Workplace Change. People bring my company, Workplace Change, in when when they are really at a crisis point where change is a requirement, where the workforce is so frustrated that they don't work anymore, (laughs) where productivity um, is going down, where managers are so stressed that they're leaving. It's when they get to that point, that's when they usually call me in. She's also the author of the book, Changing the Work Game. Cyrilda believes that business is the frontier of change for a lot of social issues today. I work in the world of business and hear a lot of impressive stories about the positive impact and social change that happens as a result of some transformative businesses. But I don't think I've ever heard a story of human resources, as in HR, leading the change. Cyrilda changed that for me. In our interview, Cyrilda and I discuss how many employees can become totally disengaged when they experience trauma in the workplace. And not the kind of trauma like needing to go to the emergency room, but the kind of emotional trauma that happens when you feel totally walked over or mistreated or devalued and the impact this has on employees, oftentimes as a result of the way they look. Cyrilda knows this from her own work experience and talks about how she ultimately came to find human resources as an effective way to address this workplace trauma. And in doing so, Cyrilla also finds her purpose in transforming workplace culture in order to create a world in which she hopes the next generation doesn't have to go through the same workplace trauma that she did. One of the things that really struck me about this interview that I want you to listen for is this idea of gratitude. Since I started researching happiness over a decade ago, I've never heard anything but positive things about gratitude. There is study after study that talks about how gratitude can lead to more happiness. But in this interview, I hope you'll hear how Cyrilda has to reject this in order for her to create the world she wants for herself and her children. Because being grateful can actually be a huge barrier to equity. For example, should Cyrilda be grateful for a job where she earns significantly less than a white man doing the same work? Gratitude isn't enough if she wants to create a world where her kids have equity in the workplace. She has to make noise and call it out in order for marginalized groups to gain equal footing. So in a way, universal gratitude that ignores inequities can be dangerous and lead to complacency. It's honestly something I've never really considered before meeting Cyrilla, and it changes the way I think about gratitude, happiness, and meaning. Also, 
Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that I'm really close to putting out my first workbook on purposeful parenting. If you recall, I interviewed several guests on the topic of parenting, and I've been trying those things out in my own life. If you want to be the first to know about it, please go to ignitedwithmeeting.com and add yourself to my email list. Without further ado, here's my interview with Cyrilda. Cyrilda, thanks so much for taking some time to talk with me today on Ignited with Meaning. Thanks for having me. Yes. I had a chance to read your book, Changing the Work Game. You start off by dedicating the book to your kids, basically saying that you hope they never have to endure the trauma of having a terrible work environment. Uh, I want to go back to when you were a child. Uh, did you have awareness that there were real problems in the workplace? Were there stories or messages from your parents when you were growing up? So I grew up in a, a blue-collar environment. So everyone worked in factories and foundries uh, throughout Michigan. I grew up in Muskegon, Michigan. And so folks didn't come home talking about having high expectations for how they were treated in the workplace. They more so talked about the opportunity to earn, like potential earnings, right? So can I get time and a half, you know, double time for a holiday? It was very seldom that anyone ever came home talking about a boss. Like folks were grateful to have a job, that allowed them to pay for their, you know, their homes and feed their children. So when did you first become aware of problems in the workplace then? I learned about a hostile work environment in the workplace, right? Like a rite of passage. Um, as I continued to evolve professionally and kind of make gains in my career, the blinders of just being grateful for a professional experience or for a professional opportunity kind of went away because the expectation became the ability to have an opportunity and to have upper mobility. So, you know, I was probably 24, 23 years old where when the gratefulness for having a job kind of subsided and then the critique of being in the job and what what a healthy work environment really looked like and what it felt like and what it meant to people. Um, that's when the the, re the realization happened. You used the word trauma. What, is, what does that mean to you in terms of trauma at the workplace? Yeah, you know, trauma at the workplace looks and feels like, you know, extreme stress. Um, being so stressed that you, you become, like it manifests in physical ways. Or when you go home and you know that you aren't the best parent you can be because you're so stressed and so distracted with the toxicity of a workplace. Or you can't be a good sibling or a good friend or a good spouse or a good partner. Where you stop dreaming and you stop like the, the sun shines a little less brightly and, you know, food tastes a little less delicious because you are so stressed out with what's going on around you that you cannot appreciate and enjoy the beauties of life. That is what trauma looks like. That is what trauma feels like. And when I talk to people in the workplace and I ask a person who's been in the work game for more than 15 years, have you ever experienced trauma in the workplace? Every hand goes up because every adult who's been in the game long enough has been traumatized. But it doesn't have to be that way. So before we keep going into kind of like how how it can be better, I'm, I'm really curious to hear um, about your experience. You alluded in your book to having experienced a pretty personally challenging uh, period in a higher education environment. I'm wondering if you can tell me about that time and the challenge you encountered personally. Oh my gosh, that's quite a story. So <clears throat> 
I always wanted to help people realize their dreams, right? So um, I went into higher education, got a master's degree in higher education administration because I'm like, I want to do this thing I love. And that is recruiting people into universities, helping them fulfill their dreams. And then, and then areas where they have deficits, helping them, you know, boost those deficits so that they can actually accomplish what they set out for. That's how I got into higher education. So I worked at a highly selective liberal arts college for about four or five years. I ultimately became an assistant dean reporting into the dean of students. And it was it was a phenomenal work opportunity. It was fantastic. But while I was there, as the only black administrator on the entire university campus, um, there was a change in guard. There was a change in the value of diversity where folks were just less interested in having a more diverse workforce and more interested in the status quo. That's the way that I would define it. And I'm kind of a big personality, right? Like I'm not a person who, you know, ducks out of the limelight, who who has something to say and just is, you know, reluctant to say it. Always professional, but I'm going to, you know, address it. And there were some systemic issues that were going on, particularly with students of color in the university or in the college um, that I just thought were profoundly problematic. And everyone else in the organization, they looked at it as business as usual. Black kid comes in, gets a totally different sanction than the white kid with a, with a more egregious misstep. And one of them is suspended and one of them gets a, a slap on the wrist. One of them gets a, f- a formal complaint, like a formal thing on their record that's going to follow them for arguably the rest of their lives. And the other one is like, well, we don't want to mess up their career for in the future. Like, what in the world is happening here? Yeah. And so I'm like, as the person of color, I've got a seat at the table. I'm going to use my seat at the table. I'm going to say and push back when these systems are clearly, like patently inequitable. And so I was wow. pretty consistently um, highlighting that. And uh, I, they didn't like it, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're trying mm-hmm. to sustain the status quo, you won't like it. And um, there was one night that I was on call and there was a student situation that that led to the student going to the hospital. And when you're the administrator on call, you go to the hospital to see like what's going on. Their parents aren't there. You know, you, you, you check in. <clears throat> so I go and I check in. When I get there, one of the doctors, a white male, um, I was asking questions. He didn't like that I was asking questions. And he was very like, you know, you can't get the answers. And I said, oh, I can't get the answers. We've got these waivers that they've signed. You're going to get me my answers. So that doctor knew one of the high ranking administrators at the university, like one of the top, top, top folks. And the doctor told the administrator that he believed that I had been drinking with the students. Now, this was long ago. Wow. I was I was younger looking, right? Now, number one, the students at this college were not at all like my friendship circle in any way. Like, <laughs> we just didn't party the same way. But beyond that, I'd worked with the administrator for years. Yeah. And they'd never seen me have any propensity to hang out with these kids. These kids were very different from my project a black urban environment. Like these kids are the antithesis of all things Cyrilda by and large. So I'm not going to go and drink with them. What is wrong with you? And I get pinged uh, Sunday morning by a senior level administrator saying that they're going to investigate me for inappropriate conduct with students. When someone accuses you of something, you like wreck your brain. Like what, what could I have done? What could I have said that could have been inappropriate, but never in my wildest dreams would it have ever been that I was drinking with students. Right, right. Like what? I mean, it was embarrassing and insulting and humiliating and it it lasted for, you know, felt like years, but probably two weeks. Um, And there just was no coming back from that. You know, I learned a lot from the institution. I learned a lot um, while I was there, but, you know, you just don't treat people 
people that way. Um, I ended up leaving the, the the university shortly thereafter, but um, but it was it was traumatizing, right? Yeah. Because I thought that they respected me. Yeah. Right. And had you been um, not a person of color, <laughs> a the doctor might have had a different reaction. Oh, to for you. sure. And B, the administrator might have been more willing to give you the benefit of the doubt, just like they did the students. Oh, or or had I been a quieter person of color or a mm. more grateful person of color or mm-hmm. a person of color who stayed in my lane versus at you know advocating perhaps they would not have come down as aggressively as they did and by the way i we asked for the doctor's information to go and ask did, the, did someone actually make that claim we never got that person's information so i don't even know if that doctor actually said that you know like there's right. so many unknowns but what i do know for sure is that they were frustrated with my advocacy for underrepresented students on the campus um at the systemic level right right so was this a pivotal moment for you in deciding that you wanted to change the workplace context as a profession or did that come about at some other point it, the, the it was a pivotal moment for me to say that i wanted out of higher education and so i said you know i want to be in a more business and sophisticated environment I want for my clientele to be adults um, and I want for there to be processes and structures and laws that are um, that dictate how and when and what to do to a certain extent. So how did you land on HR? I go back to grad school. I get an MBA um, and I focus at first it was going to be finance because numbers were always my thing. And then through the Willamette University Business School program, I fell in love with human resources because it was this nexus of both business and people. And although numbers have always been my love, connecting people to numbers, right, has always been my sweet spot. And so I'm like, the place for me to be able to be in business, but still be with people and still care about people and and help them along their journey is human resources. And I was like, I'm going to make my mark in human resources initially by just integrating the bottom line, the business and the books with the most expensive asset of every company. And that's the workforce. That's going to be my area. So I go uh, and apply for about 150 different HR outfits. No one will let me in. They said, you can come in and be an intern. I had been a dean of students up until that point at one of the most prestigious, highly selective, you know, universities or colleges on the West Coast. So I need to start as an intern. You got to be you got to be shining me on here. Uh So um, I go to the Chamber of Commerce, which is the Portland Business Alliance. And I got a job there as the executive director of a nonprofit that that had um, HR components to it. It's called Partners in Diversity. Mm-hmm. And um, and so then I helped about, you know, I don't know, we probably had 30 members at that point in time. I helped virtually every one of those companies diversify their workforce, which is directly related to human resources. And from doing that work, job offers started to pour in of like, hey, we're saying we're looking for diversity. Cyrilda's an HR person. She's helping us diversify. Why don't we just bring Cyrilda in? Right. Um, and and that was how um, how I got my first foot into the, like formally into the human resources door. And then um, three years later, I move over to the Oregon Department of Education as the human resources director, um, and then so on and so forth. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, You know, you just use the word diversity. Oftentimes when I hear that word, it's not just diversity, it's diversity, equity, and inclusion. Can you explain what each of those are and why they matter? Yeah. So diversity is basically the makeup of the people, you know, around the table. Um, 
equity is making it, you know, fair for everyone to get access to the table, right, from mm-hmm. different backgrounds. Um, and then inclusion is when they're at the table, they actually get a voice to say something um, and and it have equal weight to other folks around the table. And so um, that's, you know, simply put, that's diversity, equity and inclusion. And it transcends race. It transcends gender. It transcends a variety of things. I tell people the biggest um, battles in the workplace are not between black folks and white folks or Latin folks and black people. It's between the introvert and the extrovert. That's the greatest that those folks are are at the greatest level of warring in any ecosystem you go into agnostic of race, socioeconomic background or otherwise. Um, and I tell folks, you know, that's where the battle is. And, and extroverts don't even know they're at battle <laughs> with the introverts. <laughs> My thing is anybody who's being treated poorly based on anything is a problem for me. And I'm going to advocate for it being changed straight away. And if I'm able to see it, then it needs to be changed. And that is that is really my approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's just people being treated kindly and humanely in the workplace. So what do we need to do to really move the needle on diversity, equity, and inclusion? <laughs> Yikes. What, what do we need to do to move? We've been talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion since like the 40s, right? Uh-huh. Women in the workplace, people of color, affirmative action. We've been talking about this forever. And we still haven't made any gains. And that's because to make gains means Wait, that, we haven't made any gains. I mean, we haven't we've made gains with 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 respect to people gaining access to the jobs, but the inequities are still present. Like women are still making 75 cents on a dollar. Right? Black women are still making 66 cents on a dollar. Latino women are making 51 cents on a dollar. And by the way, when I say this, what I'm talking about is people doing the exact same job. Exact same classification. I'm not talking about the leaf blower versus the window washer versus the attorney. I'm saying looking at all the attorneys, women are still making pennies on the dollar in comparison to men. Um, That hasn't changed, right? We continue to let more folks in, but we continue to uh, establish a hierarchy of haves and have nots. That needs to be the fundamental shift. It's got to go away. But that means you need to recognize that you're no better than I am as a white man versus a black woman. But there are people who fundamentally believe you should be grateful that you're getting this opportunity because you're less than. That's baloney, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people from underrepresented environments, myself included until recently, I was grateful for having the opportunity. It is a phenomenon that is um, very present um, and it is very problematic, and um, and so I tell people this and, and people get really frustrated with me all the time because I know my value now. Right. They'll say, so you should just be grateful that somebody wants to pay you X dollars an hour to have you come in and consult. But I'm like, but I know my peers are getting paid four fifty. So why am I selling for two hundred? Like, I don't understand mm-hmm. why you mm-hmm. expect for me to make two hundred fifty dollars less per hour than a white guy who's doing this work. What's happening here? <laughs> and so so so. What was the question? <laughs> well, let, let me see if I can uh, paraphrase what you said so far. I mean, what, what you're really saying, the question was, what do we need to do to really move the needle on diversity, equity, and inclusion? And what you're saying is that there is just a, a fundamental uh, thought that people have, whether it's conscious or unconscious, that such and such of a certain color or gender or ability level should be, you know, making, and by ability, I mean, you know, as opposed to being disabled. Yeah. Um, it should be able to make a certain amount more than somebody who else who looks differently than them. Absolutely. That's a great summation. Yeah. Job well done. <laughs> 
that, uh, that rant got summarized so well. <laughs> how do you uh, so? Uh, how do you change that? How do you how do you change the awareness or that fundamental belief or, or value that that is happening in society? Um, so it's twofold. Number one, you have to um, help the underrepresented folks um, or the marginalized folks understand their value differently than they have in the past. When you become aware of what your actual value is, you can start to advocate for yourself differently during um, an evaluation, during a negotiation, which, by the way, everyone should negotiate. 80% of men make a a counteroffer when an offer is made to them for an employer. And only 30% of women make a counteroffer because women are so grateful. Uh So grateful that they were chosen. That they don't want to say like, uh, I, this needs to be my number. So women need to start start advocating more. And that's my point. Not aggressively. I'm not saying go in and kick in a door and say, you got to pay me more. No, I'm not saying that. Once you become aware of what the expectations are and what men are doing behind closed doors and what peers who are ascending, what they're doing behind closed doors, and they open the doors and give give a crack for you to be able to see you begin to advocate differently and see yourself differently. Yeah. So that's one area. People need to to feel more free to advocate for themselves and to understand their their, their value. Um, and then number two, I think mirror, a mirror needs to be held up to the faces of people in leadership. I was actually meeting with um, a CEO of a company who has expressed that he's interested in diversifying his company. And one, and I'm meeting with him and his uh, person in HR, his representative in HR. And the, the, the HR person says to me, um, well, what about diversifying the board? Because we were talking about diversifying the organization and they're trying to get more interns, more entry-level positions, people who don't have power. Yeah. So this HR per- person says, um, well, what about the board? And he was like, I'm not putting any black people on my board. Now, by the way, for the listeners, mm-hmm. I'm not kind of black, like, you know, like racially ambiguous, where maybe she's, no, I'm very black. So he says this and, um, and you know, the HR person's mortified. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just said that. I'm not mortified. That's his truth, right? For him, I'm talking about diversity that I can manage. Diversity that I have power and control and authority over. Not diversity as it pertains to leading me. Oh, mm-hmm. no. That's the mirror that has to be held up. Of like, do you really want diversity? Or is it too threatening? Is it too uncomfortable? Yeah. Is it too much of a power shift for you? So, I mean, you said that, you know, the first thing is let's show people who are underrepresented what their true value is and help them advocate for it. Mm -hmm. And the second one of showing the mirror to that person, is that just the hope that that person will change then by showing them the mirror of that? I mean, the only thing you can do is hope that a person in power will shift or you or you create competition for them and make them outdated and a relic to the game. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm coming out here in the market to say. I'm disrupting it. I I am an HR expert and I weave diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout. Now, if I'm successful, everyone who else is in the market will follow my suit or become irrelevant. And in the meantime, as they're trying to figure out how to do this thing differently, I'll soar. You know, one of the things that you said that um, was really interesting is that when you were working for the city of Portland's, you felt like your greatest... Uh, difference was helping the people there connect with their purpose. What you're just saying right now almost feels like you're, you're removing all of the barriers that would allow uh, somebody to live out a purposeful life in their workplace on, on level footing with everybody else. That's exactly right. That's that. I mean, 
I'm trying to do that, right? Mm -hmm. I have more success in certain areas than others. Um, some folks want to bring me in just as a token, right? Like I'm a really well-known, you know, African-American human resources professional in the region. And a lot of folks feel like if I just bring Cyrilda in, that'll be enough <laughs> to mm -hmm. get the, the workforce to stop being really feisty. Um, but when I get there, if there, if there's no appetite for change, then I transition. Like I, I, I refuse to be a token for dollar. You're there to be there with the company. Um, but if you kind of sniff out that they're not actually interested in change, you're going to go find the companies that are and make that one irrelevant. That's right. Mm -hmm. I like it. Going back to this idea of connecting the HR staff at the city of Portland with their purpose. Yeah. Um, you know, what did, what do you mean by that in terms of helping them connect with their purpose? The purpose is serving the people. That's what the city of Portland is supposed to do. Serve every single person in the right. city of Portland. But it's, in, it's virtually impossible to serve the public when you are experiencing um, difficulties in the workplace day in and day out. When there is tension and there is friction or you feel disrespected or you feel, you know, chronically, you know, put in your place where you can't be creative or are, you're not allowed to reimagine or even make up ideas or suggestions on things to, to strengthen the organization. So my, my charge was to iron out that dysfunction. It was not easy, but at the end of it, I think they saw that what I'd done was um, for the betterment of the city of Portland. And uh, I would say 92, 93% of the workforce was like, all right, Cyrilda, I'm, I'm rocking with you now. And so um, it was my, it, my, I loved my tenure at the city of Portland. It was hard, hard work, hard work. Um, but it was some of the most rewarding work I've ever done in my career. What, what does that do to the employee or do for the employee who's more connected with the purpose? Absolutely. So um, when you get to work, you get into a rhythm, this very rote process, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can, you can really just get lost in what the purpose of all of this is. Furthermore, management um, and, you know, executive leadership and owners, many of those folks forget to remind you of what it is that everybody should be swimming in the same direction for. What are we really trying to accomplish here? Is there a, is there a goal, a dream, a vision that we're really trying to live into? It's so um, it's so rarely is reminded to the workforce what it is we're going going towards, what we're all swimming towards, that people begin to just think about the transaction in front of them. Yeah. So from my leadership standpoint, you know, once a month at the city of Portland, and I do this now with my team. We, when we got together for all staff, I would continue to remind them of the North Star. What are we headed towards here, gang? Um, that's what leadership should be doing, all, like raising people's heads up. Where, where are people headed to? And so frequently it doesn't happen um, in companies. So you hinted at this, that you know there, there's different roles that managers and leaders can take. And I, I think that a lot of them would say that they are not opposed to diversity. And in fact, they support it, but don't actually take an active role mm -hmm. in supporting those initiatives. What would you say to these kinds of managers and leaders? Is it enough to just support the idea or do they need to be taking an active role? And if so, how active is enough? My, my stance is this. Don't claim that you're a diversity, equity, and inclusion advocate if you are passive and a bystander. Um, don't claim that you are, you know, um, for LGBTQ rights when all you do is change your signature block to the rainbow, you know, for a month out of the year. 
Don't claim that you are for, you know, Black Lives Matters when all you've ever done was put a flipping poster in the front of your, your yard. Like, that's foolery. So my thing is this. Just don't claim it outwardly if you're not really living into it, you know, externally, um, beyond in your mind or retweeting a tweet. Like, what is that? Uh, that's what I would say to that. Ultimately, it's your decision on if you want to lead differently, right? Like, you, you, I, I don't judge that. I, I don't, people who are ready to live differently, I'm here to support them in doing that differently. Right. So what is the, what is the consequence of not stepping into that? Like, like what do you, what is a, a manager or leader missing out on by not taking that active role? You know, I, that is, that is a, you know, well, all due respect, that is um, a very 1999 reference of diversity, equity, inclusion. This is, this is what you get when you try to be more inclusive. My thing is this. The heads of organizations and companies, what you're missing out on is the ability to have a diverse uh, workforce that is firing on all cylinders and that is leading from the front and is the fullest versions of themselves. So if you've got a manager who isn't living into those values, then you're setting your company back. And therefore, you need to determine if you want to keep that person on your team, status quo, mm-hmm. or if you need somebody different to shepherd you into the 22nd century. This is business. Some businesses are getting it and they're winning. Some businesses aren't. Let's put them out of business. All right. Well said. To, to close out, I've got a couple of questions for you. If your parents had written uh, the same book, Changing the Work Game, 35 years ago when you were a young kid, what problems do you think they would have seen that have been materially corrected now and which ones persist? I think people issues are people issues are people issues. I think that... Um the bottom has always uh, felt that the top doesn't appreciate them as much as they could and doesn't respect them as much as they should. And they're not getting as fair of a shake as they should be getting. Um, and I think that the the top leadership continues to try to extract as much value out of the workforce as humanly possible, sometimes a bit more cruelly than others. Um, and that'll make a person feel used up. So I don't think a lot of things have changed in 35 years. I think the, you know, it's a bit more diverse, but not at the executive levels. Still not a lot of black folks there. Still not a lot of Latino folks there. Um, it's still not a lot of women there. It wasn't 35 years ago either. <laughs> so I think that a lot of things are still present. Um, but I think this this new generation may have the, the best swing at it um, than ever before because of how connected we are. You know, one of my questions for you is, um, you know, in starting your, your new firm, what, it, what do you, what is your bravest imagining of what could be through the work you do? Yeah. My bravest imagining is that if my children decide not to work for my firm full time, <laughs> I'm building it for them. I don't want to do this work forever. Uh, but let's say they want to go out into the work environment and they, and they want to get a job. My bravest imagining is what I put in the opening foreword of my book that mm-hmm. they ne- that they are never traumatized that when that when they show up at work they don't try they don't have to try to convince the employer that they're good people that you know they're not criminals that they don't need to be you know over policed in the workplace or that when it, you know they go for a promotion if they're worth their salt and they've done their due diligence that they've got a good shot at getting it. Yeah. Imagine a world where a little dark-skinned black girl, you know, or or a dark-skinned black man who is free and educated and no criminal record believes that he can ascend in a company and and if he works hard enough, he actually could ascend in the company. 
imagine a world where that were happening. Yeah, that's beautiful. I really like that. Yeah. Uh, so your kids are, you know, in grade school. Yeah. Uh, and uh, say they get their first job in 15 years. How much do you think we can change in that time and what work will be left undone? My kids are middle class kids who need to learn how to how to work and how to just, you know, put their heads down and get at it. Because that in America, no matter what your level is in an organization, um, as, a, as, a, as a black person in particular, you're going to have to have a lot of grit and determination. And I don't see that changing. Um, so, you know, when they get working age, um, I hope that they're doing some yard work or some janitorial work or maybe work in Taco Bell like I did. Um, because folks need to learn that life is about hustle. And you can only be as great as the energy you put into it. There are no gifts. So that's what I hope my kids are are learning when they're 16 years old, getting into the workforce, trying to earn the money to get their own car. Okay. <laughs> great, great. It's got to be, you know, A, let's level the playing field so that they got just as much opportunity as anybody else, but they that's still right. got to get at it. Let's get at it, man. All right. Thank you so much for Cyrilda's. Really appreciate your time today. I really appreciate the insight that you provided. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Ignited with Meaning and this interview with Cyrilda Summers McGee. If you're like me, you love podcasts and probably share them with friends. But do you share them with your colleagues? I'm part of a group at work that started a podcast club this year. I find that to be a great way to connect with my colleagues, learn about new shows that people are listening to, and listen to content that is super relevant to my workplace. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a colleague too. Maybe it will lead to the beginnings of a cultural transformation at your place of work and help bring it into the 21st century. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Ignited with Meaning, where we're exploring the train of a meaningful life, taking steps to become our best selves, and finding more happiness, passion, and fulfillment along the way. Mm -hmm.